0: It's strange to think that the biggest shift in global politics happened not on November 3rd, and not even on January 6th, when rioters stormed the U.S. Capitol. Instead, it might've happened a few days later.
1: This morning, President Trump waking up without his favorite megaphone, Twitter permanently banning the commander-in-chief's personal account with 88 million followers,
0: It's not so much that Donald Trump himself got banned from Twitter that could shake the future of politics around the world. It's the fact that Twitter had, for years, created and stood by a policy that they would not remove tweets by world leaders. Because even though they might be incendiary and dangerous, they were also newsworthy and in the public interest. And now, all of a sudden, that has changed. And it has opened the floodgates.
1: Amazon has kicked Parler off of its web hosting services. That move follows decisions from both Apple and Google to remove Parler from their app stores, part of a continuing push by social media firms to combat misinformation and incitements to violence on their platforms.
0: Parler gained its following for an explicit hands-off approach to content moderation. Recent attempts to rein in the app's more extreme content via a team of volunteers failing to convince Amazon. Here's the question that I'm going to ask, and Lord knows I am not asking it because I ever want to see another tweet from Donald Trump. But is this fair? What does it mean to the future of the political game online? If Trump and other conspiracy-minded Americans need their accounts banned, then who else does? There's no shortage of conspiracy theorists spouting dangerous lies all over the internet and all over the world. There is also no shortage of dangerous governments defending policies that might be human rights abuses. And they're doing that on social media right now. So where is the line in the sand that Donald Trump crossed and others haven't? I'm not saying Donald Trump should be on Twitter, but I'm wondering who draws that line and what will the fallout be? As with so many other developments, in the age where everything happens online, we probably won't know the answer to that one way or the other until it's too late. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Jesse Hirsch is a researcher and a futurist. He writes an excellent newsletter, which you can find at metaviews.ca. He's our favorite person to talk to about the gigantic mess... That is social media. Hello, Jesse. Hey, Jordan. Can we just start um, with you giving us a quick rundown of of what's happened in the world of social media and big tech since uh, since the mob stormed the Capitol
1: last week? Well, ironically, I think the way I describe it itself can be contentious because there are it's really subjective. People are describing these events in different ways. But I would say that the tech companies have decided to become responsible kind of overnight, that they've faced pressures for years to, for example, hold President Trump accountable for his tweets and the way he's used their platforms, but also the way in which extremists have used these platforms to organize and mobilize and amplify their voices so that they're louder than they ought to be. And for years, the companies have said, well, we're neutral. You know, we're not responsible. There's not much we can do. And then when everyone saw the the violence in Washington, D.C., I think it, it made it clear. It made it tangible. And now we've seen companies right across the board start banning the president of the United States, start kicking off some of the extremists and kicking off people who are sharing violent content. So it's a radical shift in terms of the enforcement of what our existing policies And because of that shift, there's lots of people who see it as an attack on free speech, as an arbitrary uh, enforcement of those policies. And so while on the one hand, many of us are saying, finally, it's overdue, there are others who are terrified and saying, why are you doing this? And it's censorship and freedom of speech, making it a very contentious and very political moment.
0: Well, and that's what I want to get into in this discussion. Um, And before we sort of get to the this side or the other side, how unprecedented was this? And can you give us a sense of the scope of it? Because I know, so Facebook and Instagram and Twitter all banned President Trump, and that's where it started, but it really kept going.
1: Well, and I think what is unprecedented is not the actions, but the speed at which they are happening. And and that's where there's almost a near consensus amongst these companies in that, for years now, they've sort of cherry picked extremists and and sort of pushed off a lot of people who were both on the far right and the far left in terms of espousing either violence or, or really saying things that are not in the United States, what would be called protected speech in terms of what they're permitted to say. But to your point of what's happened recently, is it started with President Trump, then it went to individuals and then it went to other platforms with You know, I'm a Canadian, so I'm going to use the pronunciation "parlay," but Americans use the phrase "parlor," and it's kind of a Twitch competitor. It's a social platform that has much more loose rules when it comes to how speech is used. And Amazon, who is an infrastructure provider, they have a business called Amazon Web Services that uh, literally provided the server space or the hard drive space for Parlay to operate. They closed them down so rapidly that parlay couldn't find another host. I mean, they have now sort of come back online, but it's uh, part of a kind of full court press, not just amongst the industry, because the other interesting part of the parlay story is some researchers uh, decided to take an opportunity amidst the chaos to access a ridiculous amount of information about the users and about the posts on Parlay, hmm. in particular, in correlation to the incidents at, at the D.C. Capitol last week. So it, it's it's really become a full court press against anyone who ex, uh, is either associated with the events in Washington, D.C., or who has extremist ideology. The, the, they're either finding themselves banned from all platforms or they're finding themselves outed or doxxed by researchers who are identifying them as being present and engaging these activities. So it's kind of a uh, free-for-all, both in terms of uh, the way in which these platforms are now enforcing their policies, which they had not enforced previously, but also in terms of the public debate or the court of public opinion in terms of how everyone's reacting to these events.
0: Before we get into whether um, Amazon or Twitter or any other platform should be doing this, there's nothing legally stopping them, right, from banning anybody that they feel has violated their terms of service. There's no regulation insisting that Amazon provide web services to Parler or, you know, that Apple and uh, Google have to list it in the app store. Like, there's nothing illegal going on
1: here. Correct. And, and, you know, it kind of evokes the old saying of no shirt, no shoes, no service, And that a business can set expectations of the behavior or even the attire of consumers who come to that and and patronize that business. And in this case, you know, whether it's Amazon providing infrastructure or whether it's Twitter providing people with a voice, no one's entitled to that. There's no right that you need to be listened to. And in a free marketplace, there are alternatives. You know, par- parlay is only one of many. There's Gab, there's there's multitudes of alternatives. And the internet is such a place that you can actually create your own alternative. You can make your own website, you can create your own email lists. So it's really an issue of the industry wanting to present a respectable front, not free speech, not quashing free speech. And I think to your point, that's why all of this is legal, especially when dealing with illegal activity, such as promoting violence. Now, just to push
0: back on that a tiny bit, because I am really curious here, um, When you say, you know, there's nothing stopping you from creating your own platform or there are tons of other smaller platforms where you can go and say whatever you want. In the world we're currently living in, and you and I have discussed this on this show, uh, in which, you know, Facebook especially, but also Twitter and Instagram are
1: the public square. Should this be happening? Well, it depends on how we imagine the notion of public. And, you know, the the idea that these are extremists, that they're representing views that the public does not tolerate, you know, if a bunch of Nazis showed up in the literal town square and if most of the town was actually there, those Nazis would probably get run out of that town square pretty fast.
0: I'm less certain of that than I was.
1: Right. Right. Like, you know, p- people p- people respond that way in public, the, the way they would anywhere else. And and we're just seeing the digital equivalent. Because if these extremists want to gather in secret on the internet, they can do that. If these extremists want to build private communities on the internet, they can do that. But if they want to espouse violence to the public in these quasi-town squares, because that is a problem. Like, I, I... While I am glad that these extremists are being run out of the town square, I don't like that Mark Zuckerberg makes the decision. I don't like that, you know, Jack Dorsey sort of gets to make these calls because in both cases, I feel that they did it way too late. And, And so that's why if we bring it back to the notion of public or to town square and we acknowledge that these private companies kind of are acting in a not so much a public interest, but a public service. In that their facilities are being provided to the public and used in very public ways, that maybe we should have a different way of, of governing, of deciding the rules, of deciding who gets to stay and who gets to go. And that's where I am empathetic to what many conservatives and what many right-wing people see as a kind of liberal conspiracy. It's not, but at the same time, the rules aren't fair either. And, and the way in which these rules are enforced is kind of arbitrary So I'm sympathetic to the idea that the governance of these quasi-public spaces is dysfunctional and not fair and maybe should be not just more transparent, but more participatory. So that, you know, people had a chance of appealing or people had a chance of saying, you know, that wasn't me in the D.C. Capitol. I I lent my phone to a friend and they went. And that's why those GPS coordinates are there or or whatever that appeal might be. I, I think those are fair issues for us to be thinking about.
0: Yeah. And that's where I come back to, because Lord knows um, I'm perfectly happy to never read another Donald Trump tweet. But the way in which it's happened um, strikes me as I won't say worrisome because I don't know where it's going to go. But that's my real question is now that this uh, precedent of sorts has been established, what happens from here with these companies? Do they now have to employ the same sort of crackdown that they've employed in the past week to all questionable violent speech on their platforms because Donald Trump Jr., who is an idiot, um, nevertheless pointed out that there are lots of other nasty regimes around the world that are on Twitter. There are lots of other violent groups that are on Twitter. You know, it doesn't it doesn't start or end with Donald Trump, sadly. And,
1: and that's the paradox in that... You know, one of the other uh, policy issues in the in the U.S. context here is is what's called Section two hundred and thirty of the Communication Decency Act. So, so this is the Communication Decency Act was was passed in nineteen ninety six when the internet was just taking off as a, a site for commerce, and it basically granted internet companies neutrality. It sort of said, you know, you do your best to prevent bad things from happening on your platform. But when those bad things happen, we won't hold you responsible. We'll hold the person who did those bad things responsible. And it allowed these companies to grow at ridiculous rates because they weren't responsible. Because if people on YouTube broke copyright or if people on Facebook broke the law, you know, YouTube or Facebook were not responsible. But that also meant that they couldn't do things like arbitrarily kick people off because that meant they were taking responsibility. That meant it was no longer neutral. And so the paradox of kicking off the president of the United States is that it all of a sudden sends a signal that, yes, we're publishers. Yes, we have editorial control. Yes, we are going to decide what is on our platform and off our platform, hmm. even though you know there's been no rule changes. Like Donald Trump was breaking these rules throughout his entire administration, but they gave him a pass because they said, well, you know, he's the president. Right. But he's still the president now, and they kicked him off. So what's changed is public opinion. What's changed is the kind of consensus amongst the industry as to what should be tolerated, what shouldn't. And the paradox is that now makes them vulnerable to government regulation. That now makes them vulnerable to the government saying, well, if you have the power to silence the president, well, you shouldn't have the ability to exercise that power without our permission, without Congress, without the people being able to have say as to how you wield that power. And that's where I think the technology companies were, were really sort of caught between a rock and a hard place because they couldn't do nothing. Like there was no, if they did nothing, the, the public outrage would would have been tremendous. But now that they have done something, they're incredibly vulnerable to government regulation and rules as to when they should be exercising this power.
0: When Republicans say that this is a great example of why they want to repeal Section 230, uh, why do they want that,
1: and what would the result be? Uh, I mean, part of it really comes down to the the, the perception of bias and how we think of bias. Because Republicans, and, and to a certain extent, you know, they're right. They see social media companies as having a liberal bias, and while there's some truth to that on a kind of corporate policy level. You know, Facebook doesn't actually decide to give greater profile to liberals rather than conservatives. In fact, conservatives tend to outperform on Facebook far greater than liberals, not because of any bias on Facebook, but just because of the people who use Facebook tend to be interested in that content more. And while that might have more to do with demographics than algorithms, the idea that there's bias uh, in these platforms there, there is some truth to that in the sense that there's no way to remove bias. And therefore, if there's bias, there's no neutrality. And therefore, they should not have that protection under the law. And if you think about the origins of newspapers, you know, newspapers used to be very partisan. And, and to a certain extent, they still are. And all media historically had, if not a partisanship to it, a kind of bias to it. And I actually think that's what's happening with social media right now. Because if you choose to go to Gab or Parlay, well, you're going to get a right-wing slant. If you go to Twitter, you might get a centrist or liberal slant. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of other social networks out there where you could get any slant you want, whether ideological, philosophical, or religious. And, and I think that's okay. I think that's honest. And I think that's part of the consequence of removing 230 is, is you then turn these platforms into publishers. You you give them editorial power and then they have to decide what their mission or their focus or their audience is rather than trying to be everything to everyone, which, you know, is what these social media giants have done up to this date.
0: Do you think the strict enforcement of terms of service that we've seen in the past week will be forgotten? Like, do, do the big tech companies hope that you know, they can weather it out, I guess, for the next eight days or or however long until Biden is inaugurated and, you know, Trump hopefully recedes into memory, though that kind of seems unlikely to me. Um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, this is probably not a standard they want to commit to applying universally going forward because, of, as they've always said, they don't have the moderators or the tools to catch everything.
1: Well, and, and that's uh, the other paradox, right? Here, here Here's the shocker. If any of these companies were to actually enforce their terms of service, they would go out of business, Hmm. right? And, And I say this just on the copyright level, like the amount of copyright violations that happen on any of these platforms. And some of them try to fight this more than others. But if they were to automatically, you know, remove all copyright content, not only would most users get copyright strikes and be banned from their platform, right? but people wouldn't want to use their platform anymore because they wouldn't be able to post their memes and their videos and their photos that they want to share. And that's just copyright. Like there's so many ways in which these terms of service are hypocritical and total propaganda. Like they're, you know, aspirational statements of what the company aspires to. They are not realistic contracts that bind the user and the company. And that's why people get so upset at this arbitrary enforcement in which some people get punished when you, when you yourself with your own eyes, see other people flagrantly breaking the rules and doing stuff that should also get them punished, but they're not. And and you you identified the reason why. It's because algorithms can't do it, Mm -hmm. right? You can't have automated enforcement. There's no way it's going to be effective. There's no way it's going to be accurate. And these larger companies, they grew so fast and at such scale that they couldn't hire enough human beings to be able to do all this work necessary. So that's why it is a kind of day of reckoning. You know, that's why the Biden administration is going to look uh, at, at rules for these companies. Whether those rules are favorable or not is going to be a, 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 an issue of lobbying and is going to be an issue of kind of how the sausage is made in the policy factory that is Washington. But nonetheless, these rules are going to be there. And, and that's where I think these larger companies are, in, are really quite vulnerable.
0: I want to talk uh, briefly before we wrap up about the optics uh, and how that informed the decision. Because, well, just here, here's a question: If uh, Bolsonaro, the uh, leader in Brazil, had incited a mob to storm the Brazilian equivalent of the Capitol building, which I'm sorry I don't know the name of, um, and and this same sort of thing had happened, does does all this uh, social media crackdown
1: still happen? That's a great question. And I think it really depends on the country. You know, in Bolsonaro's case, maybe not. Brazil not only has a history of military dictatorships, but it has Mm -hmm. uh, a, a much more favorable climate in terms of that type of extreme political action. But, you know, in Facebook and Twitter's defense, they have been removing uh, junta leaders and, you know, coup plotters and, you know, proponents of violence around the world who use their platform to do so, Uh, not effectively, not evenly, not consistently, but they have been doing it. It kind of depends on who they employ in the region and who speaks the language, quite frankly, because it's been in countries where they haven't had people speaking the language that... You know, the the demagogues and the, the bigots have been able to really use these platforms without the companies realizing it and without their knowledge. So that, that kind of negligence, I, I think, is more the of an explanation than, you know, the nature of public pressure. But the story of public pressure is that these companies are genuinely vulnerable, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, Facebook could like plummet tomorrow if everyone just decided to stop using it. And, you know, Twitter has been struggling the last several years with stagnant user growth, even user decline. So they're very vulnerable to public pressure and public opinion. And, and that really speaks to the, the nature of our age, that everyone feels they have a voice. Everyone feels that, you know, in, in our current environment, that if they express themselves, they can make a difference. And that's why it's even more upsetting when they get kicked out or when they get silenced because they feel a sense of agency. And then when that agency is denied, you know, there there is a real sense of, of, of injustice, a real sense of tragedy.
0: It's funny, uh, because I'm going to end by asking you about the Biden administration. But uh, we often get told that American politics influence the world. And this is one of those cases uh, in which solely because these are American companies, um, the future of social media platforms kind of depends on the will of the branches of American government. Is is that right? And and what do you think's gonna happen when the new administration comes in?
1: Well I, I'm I'm still of the if the new administration comes in. I hope the new administration comes in, but I ain't counting my chickens yet. Okay, um, fair enough. You know, with that said, I think we are going to see, I think we're going to see necessary scrutiny of these companies. I think we're going to see a healthy public policy debate as to the role this technology and the role that these companies should play in our society. I think America is finally going to join Europe in having that conversation with them. But I agree with you wholeheartedly that it is the future of social media. It's the future of media. Right, you know the the extent to which people learn about their world through social media uh, is is already very much uh, a reality. But with that said, let's not forget China. Right, I mean right. TikTok. TikTok won 2020, and it's still growing. And and the 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 tech giants in China are conquering the world outside of North America and Europe. So that is the the paradox for the Biden administration that they're facing domestic pressure at home to curb the power of these giants. Meanwhile, digital imperialism is such that they want to make sure that these American companies uh, can compete with the Chinese companies, that they can compete with potential European companies. So all of this is fraught with peril. All of this is a kind of delicate dance between sort of what we know is morally right and what we fear in terms of what this technology is capable of. And that's why I welcome the debate. That's why I'm excited to finally have an administration that could be competent, that could actually be interested in, you know, honest policy discussion, because I think the time is right to talk about how we govern the technology companies and how we empower humans, how we help humans use this technology and use their newfound voice to, you know, help make a positive impact. And 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 that's where hopefully the Biden administration, if anything, will be irrelevant because they'll be too busy governing that the rest of us can go on with our lives instead of being obsessed with this reality show that never seems to end.
0: Jesse, thank you so much for taking the time to explain this for us. A- am I wrong to? Think that there is a non zero chance that this somehow ends with the Biden administration asking Jack Dorsey to reinstate Trump's Twitter account?
1: No, I, I think that, that, that Trump on Twitter is done. I think Trump <laughs> on Facebook is dumb. I think the variable we should be watching out for is the Trump social media, like him creating his own platform because, you know, that was always his plan was to come out of this with a media empire. That's what Fox News is terrified about. And I think that's what Jack Dorsey should be worried about.
0: That is a whole other terrifying episode, uh, which I hope we (laughs) never have to record. Thank you, Jesse. (laughs) Thanks, Jordan. Jesse Hirsch, a futurist from metaviews.ca. Check out his newsletter. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us there. You can find Jesse's previous interviews. You can also find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, assuming they don't ban us after this episode. And of course, we are in your favorite podcast player, whether it's Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify. You pick it. You'll find us there. If they let you, rate us, review us, five stars, etc. You know the deal by now. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk
1: tomorrow.